Welcome to The Art Career, a space breaking barriers by letting you sit in on candid, straightforward conversations with leading art professionals in visual arts, writing, music, theater, and film. I'm your host, Emily McElreath, and I invite you to join me for inspirational conversations with icons of our generation. We dive deep into topics like self-development, career trajectories, mental health, social justice, and the artists that have changed our lives. With each episode, our mission is to empower you, expanding your journey through the arts. Join us for new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. The Art Career is thrilled to announce its partnership with Glimpse. Glimpse Guides are a collection of luxury guidebooks with an outstanding social mission we are proud to support. Featuring the best of hotels, restaurants, activities, and itineraries for each featured city, Glimpse Guides also include recommendations and travel tips by a curated selection of tastemakers. The most exciting part of Glimpse Guides is 100% of their profits go to Give a Glimpse, which provides funding for educational travel scholarships for underserved students. What is better than that? Glimpse believe that travel is the most important form of education, and it is their mission to send as many deserving students abroad as possible. Glimpse also offers luxury trip design services with VIP perks like early check-in, room upgrades, restaurant and spa credits, welcome gifts, and more. Glimpse has quickly become our one and only travel planner. Go check them out at glimpseguides.com and tell founder Jordan Rhodes that the Art Career Podcast sent you. Welcome to the True Crime Gallery, the dark side of art, the season three miniseries finale of the Art Career Podcast, where we are going to uncover the dark and twisted tales where art and crime intersect. In this three-part series, we bring you bone-chilling stories that will leave you captivated. We're going to begin this week with Dr. Noah Charney, telling the tale of the cursed Ghent altarpiece. Next week, I'm going to explore the horrifying use of modern art as an instrument of torture. I'm going to explore a crime hidden behind one of the Louvre's prized masterpieces and the disturbing artistic endeavors of a notorious serial killer. We'll end with the famous thefts of the Mona Lisa. Brace yourself for these haunting narratives, and thank you always for tuning in. Dr. Noah Charney is the internationally best-selling author of more than 20 books translated into 14 languages. He is a professor of art history, specializing in art crime, and has taught for Yale University, Brown University, and American University of Rome. He is founder of ARCA, the Association for Research into Crimes Against Art. 
He writes regularly for dozens of major magazines and newspapers, including The Guardian, The Washington Post, The Observer, and The Art Newspaper. He has recently fronted an influencer campaign for Samsung, and in 2022, he presented a BBC Radio 4 documentary, China's Stolen Treasures. He lives in Slovenia with his wife, children, and their hairless dog. His work in the field of art crime has been praised in such international forums as the New York Times, Time Magazine, BBC Radio, National Public Radio, Vogue, Vanity Fair, Playboy, and Elle. Welcome, Dr. Noah Charney. Hi, Noah. Hey, Emily. Thanks for having me. This is very exciting. This is very exciting. So before we start, I want all of our listeners to understand who you are and what you do as a career. So I have a very weird art career. In fact, I essentially established it myself because my area of interest didn't fit into any existing profession. So the short version is I'm the art crime guy. I'm the people that most would associate with the study of art crime and its history. Maybe whether it's, you know, a cab driver or a professor, they think true crime involving art is intriguing. They've seen the movies and the TV shows. And overnight, I was the, the art crime specialist. I was even teaching a seminar on it at Yale University before I'd finished my PhD because there was no one else who knew about this. So it was a very roundabout way to carving out this career just based on seeing a niche that I found intriguing and just seeing what I could make of it. I mean, it's so appropriate for this podcast as we do focus on careers and manifestation of a career. We're so lucky to have you here, really. And and we're looking forward to having this relationship with the art crime guy. So today on The Art Career... We welcome Dr. Noah Charney. And in this new mini series we're introducing called True Crime at the Art Career, we start with the story of the many thefts of the Ghent altarpiece. Noah, take it away. And I will be here to ask all of the questions. So this is a great place to start because anything bad that could happen to a work of art has happened to this one painting. It's the subject of a book I wrote in 2010, but if we go back in time a little bit, while I was still an undergraduate student, one of my professors mentioned offhand that there was one painting that was arguably the most influential painting ever made, and it was the most frequently stolen, and he thought it might be the most desired real object in history. So Americans like me, we love superlatives. So here we had three big superlatives that immediately sounded suspicious to me, but I was intrigued. And so we started to talk through this painting and we can look at it from an art historical standpoint. It was painted from 1426 to 1432 by Jan van Eyck. Um, It's considered the first really important oil painting. It's not the first oil painting ever made, but the one that showcased the capabilities of this medium It became a pilgrimage point for artists and culturati from the moment it was first displayed in the Cathedral of St. Bavo in Ghent. And um, it really influenced the course of painting because from that point on, oil was the preferred medium for painters really until the 20th century. It's the first realist work 
So it's a, a holy scene. If we describe it, it's a huge triptych. It weighs about 1,500 kilos. A triptych is a three-part altarpiece. So it's got a central section and two wing panels that can open and close on hinges. It consists of 12 panels, some of which are painted on both sides. And it's sort of an A to Z of Catholic mysticism. When it's closed, we see uh, scenes from the start of Christ's life, beginning with the Annunciation. So the Archangel Gabriel comes to the Virgin Mary and says, Ave Maria, um, gratia plena dominus tecum. And with these words, Mary is impregnated. And then in the inside, we have um, a number of different panels, but the central one that gives the altarpiece its nickname, Adoration of the Mystic Lamb, is a huge field in heaven surrounded by over a hundred portrait-like figures. So each face is absolutely unique, paying homage to a lamb who's bleeding into a chalice, the Holy Grail, and that represents Christ's sacrifice. So the realism level is astounding, and it's a sort of God's eye view of the world. We have a macroscopic view of over a hundred figures in a field. And you can zoom in and there are things like botanically identifiable flowers and the reflection of light in a horse's eye. So God's got a great zoom lens so he can zoom right up in there and pull back as much as he likes. So this was a hugely influential painting, but it was also desired and stolen on, I like to say six and a half occasions. The half occasion isn't a proper theft. It was an inappropriate deaccessioning. <laughs> but it's got a crazy story and just about anything bad that can happen has happened to this starting from relatively soon after it was finished in 1432. Okay. So what's the first thing that happens? So very early on, there's a fire in the cathedral and ash falls on what's called the predella, which looks a little bit like a comic strip that runs along the bottom of an altarpiece. But the really dramatic first adventure was in 1566 when there were Calvinist riots in the city of Ghent. So Ghent was occupied by the Catholic Habsburgs. And one of the Calvinists' objections was to Catholic icons and what they saw as the inappropriate use of funds to pay for these elaborate cathedral works and paintings and gilding and whatnot. And when the Calvinists were rioting, their plan was to break into the cathedral of Ghent and take everything they could outside and burn it in front of the cathedral. And already the icon of the city of Ghent was the Ghent altarpiece. But there were Catholic soldiers who knew that the altarpiece would be a target and they locked themselves into the cathedral one night. Um, and the rioters were raging outside and they tried to burst through the oak door of the cathedral, but they weren't able to do so. But the knights inside, the Catholic guards knew that they would be back. And indeed the next night they did come back and this time they had a battering ram. They had a tree trunk strapped with ropes that they swung against the oak door of the cathedral until it splintered. And you can imagine the knights inside with their hands on their swords being very sweaty and nervous because they were vastly outnumbered. And the rioters burst in and you can imagine them rushing through the center of the cathedral with their torchlight flickering off the walls and the stained glass. And they rush to the chapel where the Ghent altarpiece is displayed. And when they get there, it's gone, it has disappeared. And in the heat of the night, they didn't have the wherewithal to think of all the different places they might look. And by the time the night was over, the riot receded, the Catholics took over the city again. And it had never occurred to them to look up in the bell tower. So what had happened is the Catholic guards had dismantled the altarpiece into its 12 constituent panels and hid it at the top of the bell tower and locked themselves in and hoped nobody would notice. And in fact, nobody did. They did destroy the original framework of the altarpiece and everything else that was in the cathedral except for this was saved. 
So that was the first of its great adventures. It was nearly destroyed by iconoclasts. Wow. And this was soon after it was painted in what? 14... So it was finished in 1432. This was in 1566 at a time when during the Reformation, particularly Calvinists were objecting to um, Catholic art that had images of God or Jesus because part of the objections of the Reformation was the misappropriation of funds for expensive works of art and building of monuments, and also the idea that you should have these images of saints, God, and Jesus that some people were worshiping in an idol-like way, or at least that's what the Calvinists would have said. If you want to get pregnant, you pray to St. Margaret. That's a little bit too much like um, a polytheistic approach to, you know, you pray to Poseidon if you want to have a good sea voyage. So rather than being able to destroy the ideology of Catholicism, rather than be able to actually physically attack the Pope, these Reformation iconoclasts would attack Catholic art and buildings. Okay, so this was, you know, one of a handful. It's it's almost as if this piece has been cursed in mm-hmm. the history of art. So this was the first of a handful of horrible things that have happened around the altarpiece. So keep going, Noah. Tell us what else has happened. So we'll focus on the the times that it was stolen all or in part. So we'll fast forward a bit now to 1794, when Napoleon took over um, the lowlands where uh, Ghent is located. And Napoleon was the first general who had a dedicated military unit for the stealing of art and cultural heritage objects. He looked back to ancient Rome and he said, well, if the Romans did this, then I can too, because my goal is to reproduce the extent of the Roman Empire. And when I teach the history of art crime, I go back to 212 BC, which is the Roman Republican army sack of the city of Syracuse in Sicily, which launched a craze for Hellenistic, or as we would call it today, ancient Greek art. And from that point on, Roman military policy involved the stealing of monuments and art from defeated peoples. And in fact, in ancient Rome, there was actually a museum of artworks that had been stolen from conquered peoples um, and displayed as trophies of war. So Napoleon says, this is a great idea, I'm all in. So he had several officers who were dedicated to gathering the most valuable objects from defeated territories, boxing them up and shipping them back to Paris because the Louvre, which had been the royal French residence in Paris, was transformed into an art museum. And Napoleon had a very interesting and influential art advisor by the name of Dunant, who was the first director of the Louvre Museum. And Dunant made a nice little shopping list. If you happen to see these works while conquering Europe, Napoleon, we would quite like them for the Louvre collection. Um, And he got a lot of them. And he got certainly tens of thousands of objects. And believe it or not, some objects that he looted are still in the Louvre collection today. But one of the things that he looted were the wing panels of the Ghent altarpiece. Now it's not clear why his officers didn't take the central panels because the altarpiece unfinished, incomplete, isn't as valuable. And when Dunant received the wing panels, he immediately said, this is not this is not gonna be cutting it, we need the whole thing. So he tried to make a deal. He said, I'll swap your Rubens painting for the central panels of the Ghent altarpiece. The people of Ghent are like, are you kidding? Rubens is from Antwerp. What would we want with that? We're gonna keep our central panels, thank you. Um, And this is another incident when part of the altarpiece was stolen. After Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo, uh, the French King Louis, who had been sheltered for two years in Ghent, protected while Napoleon was in power, returned the wing panels as a thank you to the city. 
So it was briefly together again, but not for long, because the next incident was in 1816. And this is the half a theft. So in 1816, the Bishop of Ghent was abroad and a vicar by the name of Le Sœur, along with the cathedral fabric, so basically the, the advisory board for the cathedral, decided they needed money to fix up the cathedral itself. So why not let's sell the wing panels? And they sold it to a crooked Brussels art dealer. So they deaccessioned it in a way that was probably illegal and shouldn't have been allowed, but it's not technically a theft, but they did it on the sly when the bishop was out of town. And they sold it to this crooked Brussels art dealer, Neuenhaus. Neuenhaus sold it to a British art collector named Edward Solly, who sold it to the King of Prussia. And the King of Prussia was trying to create an art collection that would outdo the Louvre. Neuenhaus was quite a character, and he had already sold the Gendalter piece, or at least that's what he claimed. What he'd actually done is he sold an exact full-size copy by a 16th century Flemish painter called Michel Coxy, and he sold it to one of Napoleon's generals who thought it was the original that had been stolen. Back in the day, why was it okay to, to buy something you thought was stolen? Well, at a time with shifting empires, ownership was a slippery thing. It's, it's very much a modern idea that uh, a nation should have the ownership of, of its uh, cultural patrimony. So a Napoleonic general with some money to spare was delighted to buy a freshly looted altarpiece and keep it for himself, but it turns out it was a copy. So now we have uh, the panels divided. The central panels were still in Ghent. The wing panels were in what would become the Kaiser Friedrich Museum in Berlin. And another bad thing happened to them there. Some brilliant curator got the idea, wouldn't it be nicer instead of having these panels which are painted on two sides, so it's hard to admire them without walking around them. Let's split them vertically and display them stuck on a wall. Sounds like a great plan, um, except that they used a bandsaw to split these very fragile panels that are only a few centimeters wide to begin with. Miraculously, it didn't all explode in a shower of um, shards of wood, but the panels were split vertically. And that would become important in the 1934 theft. We're not quite there yet. Right now we've got the wing panels in Berlin and in Ghent are the central panels. And then we get to the First World War. First World War. During the First World War, the central panels were still in St. Baba Cathedral, but the German army was encroaching. And it was logical that they would try to seize the central panels because the wing panels were already in Berlin. Why was there such a focus? This was already, as soon as it was painted, arguably the most famous painting in Europe, certainly the most famous in Northern Europe. And this was the thing that you would steal to demonstrate that you have conquered the lowlands. This is essentially the equivalent of taking the battle flag. So this was an obvious target. And the Germans were probably going to steal it. So what were the people working at the cathedral to do to try to protect it? Well, the hero of the World War I story is a plucky canon named Gabriel van den Geen. And he hatched a plan to smuggle the central panels out of the cathedral. And he had to do it secretly because he didn't know who was a potential spire collaborator for the encroaching German army. And they were probably just a few days away from taking the city. So he hatched a plan to have a junk peddler back up his horse-drawn junk cart into the courtyard of the Episcopal Palace, which is adjacent 
to St. Pavel Cathedral. And back in the day, this was like Walmart on wheels, you know, a junk peddler would have everything you could think of that you need to buy on a horse-drawn carriage, and he would go through town and you would stop if you want to buy something. And so he unloaded all the junk from the carriage. He wrapped the individual panels of the central part of the altarpiece in blankets, put them at the bottom of the cart, and loaded the cart back up. And then anyone who saw the junk dealer had gone into the courtyard of the Episcopal Palace, probably sold a broom or something to the bishop and then headed on out. And then the junk peddler stopped at several houses around the center of the city. And in each house, he hid one of the panels, usually behind the floorboards or within a crawl space between walls. This would have gone well, except the Germans knew that somebody had hid the panels. They did plan to steal it. Um, and there was also the problem that they kept on sequestering houses for occupation of soldiers and officers. And there was a danger that the houses where these panels were hidden would be sequestered and then maybe they would accidentally stumble on them. But the war was moving on and it was right near the end of the war when the German in charge of Ghent said, we will start blowing up parts of the city if you don't tell us where the panels are. And they might have done so, but the armistice arrived just in time to save the day. And after the armistice, the central panels were returned to the cathedral, but so were the wing panels. And this would be an important point when the work was stolen in World War II. So part of the Treaty of Versailles, which is the treaty that ended the First World War, mentions just a few cultural heritage objects. It's a bit random. There's a skull. There's a Duke Dirk Bouts altarpiece. There's a copy of the Quran, and there's the wing panels of the Ghent altarpiece. So the main issue that the Germans took as wholly inappropriate was they hadn't actually stolen the wing panels. They tried to steal the central panels, but the wing panels had been bought legitimately by the King of Prussia and were part of his collection. So they thought it was wildly inappropriate that they had to return these as sort of reparations of war, but they did. So the altarpiece was once more reunited. And the Treaty of Versailles really angered Hitler. Now, he wouldn't come around for a little while, but part of his goal with the Second World War was to right what he perceived as the wrongs inflicted on the German people by the Treaty of Versailles. And he was so focused on it that when France surrendered to him during the Second World War, he had the exact train carriage in which the Treaty of Versailles was signed, brought to Paris so he would force France to surrender to him in that same carriage to sort of symbolically undo the Treaty of Versailles. And because the Ghent altarpiece was mentioned in it, it became his number one most wanted object when the Second World War rolled around. This was the painting that he wanted. Um, but we haven't gotten there quite yet. We have one incident before the Second World War to touch upon, which is the theft of a single panel that's still missing. To this day, still missing. As someone extremely passionate about mental health, seeing a therapist is essential to my quality of life. We'd like to take this moment to announce how thrilled we are to partner with the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp. If you think you might be feeling anxious, depressed, or even just overwhelmed, being alone with your thoughts can be an isolating feeling. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. You just fill out a questionnaire to help 
assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. It's that easy. Join the 2 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. And just for the Art Career podcast listeners, we will offer 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash T-A-C. That's better, B-E-T-T-E-R, help, H-E-L-P dot com slash T-A-C. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring the Art Career Podcast. So there's one panel still missing to this day, and the panel is referred to as the Righteous Judges. And it depicts some riders on horseback who are going to visit the mystic lamb who is being adored in that central panel. So in 1934, in one April night, someone saw two men emerge from St. Baba Cathedral, carrying what looked like a package roughly the size of the panel, wrapped in a white sheet. They got into a car and they disappeared. This is not necessarily the best witness because the only eyewitness to this was someone who was stealing cheese from a cheese shop across the square. But nevertheless, he did attest to this when the police questioned him. The next morning, the police arrived at the cathedral, but they didn't secure the crime scene. It was bungled from day one. It was like Inspector Clouseau uh, in action. They thought it was much more important to investigate the theft from the cheese shop. And they came back later after a crowd had been pawing their way through uh, the cathedral to see what had happened. And this panel was missing and they wrote down that a single one was missing, but in fact, there were two halves of one panel missing. So two objects and the front half shows the righteous judges the um, verso or the backside shows a grisaille or grayscale painting of St. John the Baptist. Very soon after the theft, the Bishop of Ghent got a ransom demand. And the ransom notes are very funny. They're written in French in a very quirky way. And the basic gist of it is, if I've gone to all the trouble of stealing this panel, the least you could do is play ball and pay the ransom for it. This is this is how this works, Bishop. You haven't seemed to figure out. I go steal something and you pay the ransom. Um, and it was a series, uh, first in a series of 12 ransom notes, getting ever more annoyed with the fact that nobody was paying him. But the ransomer did return the verso part, so the grisaille John the Baptist, half of the panel. They returned to the bishopric by sending a luggage ticket to the bishopric for the luggage check at the local Ghent train station. And the police brought it to the train station, handed over the ticket, and they got half of the panel wrapped up. But they still were looking for the judge's half of the panel. And the ransom demand went back and forth, but the bishop refused to pay the million um, franc ransom. And the police were foiled. They had no idea what was going on. Um, and then we fast forward a number of months when a short, stocky, mustachioed stockbroker named Arsene Houdetier collapsed of a heart attack at a Catholic political rally in a suburb of Ghent. And he's brought to his cousin's house and he calls for his lawyer and his lawyer disappears into a room with him. And for 15 minutes, they're alone together. And then when the lawyer comes out, it turns out that Arsene Houdetier has died. And with his dying breath, he said, I am the last person on earth who knows the location of the missing judge's panel. And he mentioned his desk and a key. 
So it sounds like it sounds like um, uh, uh, like a Netflix whodunit special, and they probably should make one about this. But so the lawyer went to the guy's house, which was in a suburb of Ghent, and he went to his writing desk. And in the writing desk, he found carbon copies of all twelve of the sent ransom notes, plus a thirteenth ransom note that had never been sent. And the thirteenth note implied that no one, not even I, can retrieve the stolen panel without attracting public attention. So this very tantalizing clue suggested it was hidden somewhere in a public space or in plain sight, and it launched decades of weekend detectives snooping around the city of Ghent, still to this day because the panel's still missing. But there's always a Ghent police officer assigned to this very cold case. This was back in 1934. They get hundreds of tips every year. Uh, several of them they follow up on, and there have been some very kooky tips. Um, they uprooted the floor of a car park, nothing there. They uprooted part of a Ghent public square, nothing was there. A clairvoyant uh, was hired to commune with the skull that they dug up from the graveyard of Arsene Houdetier to see if the skull could pass on any information. Um, nothing doing. But through some detective work, some of these weekend detectives have figured out what probably happened, even if we don't know the location of the panel at the moment. So what probably happened is this, Arsene Houdetier was not physically capable of being the thief himself. He was short and stocky, he had an eyesight problem, which meant that he could not see in uh, low lighting, so he wouldn't have been able to navigate in the dark inside the cathedral. Um, there was also insider knowledge because very shortly after the theft, the cathedral was gonna install security gates around the Ghent altarpiece, which would have made it much harder to steal from. And the eyewitness saw two people leave, but he also saw only one package. And it may be that both halves of the panel were wrapped together, but that would be an interesting point. So what probably happened is that these thieves were working with Arsene Houdetier. He designed the theft, but there's a big question about the motivation that's never been firmly established. When he died in one of his bank accounts, he had more money than was requested in the ransom demand. So exactly why he would do this when he was also a very devout Catholic and he participated in the, the community that ran St. Baba Cathedral, um, nobody's been able to identify the motivation. But there's some other clues, and I think this is fascinating as a writer who's written both fiction and nonfiction. I love this. So Arsène Houdetier was obsessed with the novels of Maurice Leblanc. Now, people in the Francophone world know him because he was as famous as Arthur Conan Doyle is in the Anglophone world. Maurice Leblanc was a novelist who had a character named Arsène Lupin or Arsène Lupin who was a fictional character, who was a gentleman cat burglar who stole jewels and art. And Arsene Houdetier loved this guy's writing and he thought this was super cool. He's got the same first name as Arsene Lupin. And it seems that he designed the theft of the panel based on the plot of his favorite Maurice Leblanc book called The Hollow Needle. And in that book, Arsene Lupin steals something by hiding it on the premises from which he stole it. The benefit, it's like, I'm going to break into your house and steal your car keys, but I'm actually just going to hide them in your house. And if you pay the ransom, I'm going to tell you where they are. But the benefit of this is you don't have the risk of trying to return the stolen object when you get the ransom. So the reason we think that this is the case is that key that his lawyer found in his uh, writing desk 
was to the rood loft in the cathedral. So this is part of the cathedral itself. And it's most likely that the judge's panel was hidden in the rood loft initially, or possibly behind a confession booth. But it's not there anymore. So the question is, where is it now? So we know who designed the theft. We don't know why he did it. We don't know who the thieves were who were accomplices. Um, but we have a sense of at least part of the story. But the panel's still missing. So why was it not in the rude loft if that's where the key would have led an investigator to? So we have to fast forward just a little bit. Just prior to the Second World War in 1938, the Minister of Propaganda for the Nazis, Joseph Goebbels, got the idea to have a wonderful birthday gift for Hitler. He would present him with the missing judges panel. Why, again, this is related to the Treaty of Versailles and Hitler's focus on recuperating the Ghent altarpiece, which he thought was inappropriately taken for the German people. The Ghent altarpiece is also fitting with um, Nazi and uh, Hitler's interests in aesthetics and art. Uh, Van Eyck was, a, we could say, a Teutonic um, artist painting in a Northern Renaissance style that um, Nazis, particularly Hitler, loved. Um, and there's also some thought that Hitler may have believed that the Ghent altarpiece contained a coded treasure map that would lead to um, Catholic relics that would give supernatural powers to whoever owned them. If that sounds uh, a little bit like an Indiana Jones plot, it's because the Indiana Jones series was based on a real uh, Nazi research group called the Ananeva, which had over a hundred staff members in its own building in Berlin. And this was a real research organization that was meant to research the supernatural and how it could possibly benefit the, the Nazi war effort. And certain high-up Nazis like Hitler and Himmler genuinely believed in the supernatural and enough to dedicate resources to it. So this sort of kooky side story that there's a coded treasure map in it, that is actually plausible that Hitler believed it. It's not plausible that there's actually a treasure map, but I believe that Hitler might have believed it. So this was going to be a great birthday gift. The only thing is they had to find it first. So Goebbels sent a Nazi art detective named Heinrich Kuhn to Ghent and with all of the... Um, persuasive methods that he had to hand, he surely would have found the altarpiece if it had not been hidden in a more compelling way. And so who was in charge of shepherding him around St. Baba Cathedral and answering all the questions he had? Canon Gabriel Vandenkane, the guy who saved the altarpiece from the Germans in World War I. So what probably happened is that Vandenkane was somehow aware of the location of the judge's panel, or involved in its initial theft in 1934. Again, the motivation, we don't know why. But he probably moved it from either the Rudloft or behind a confession booth, because anywhere in the cathedral, the Nazi art detective would have found. Um, and it seems probable that he moved it to a different church in Ghent. And then what happened afterwards is anybody's guess. Um, but I participated in a BBC documentary and in that documentary, we found where it went next. And that is behind the rood screen, so the altar screen of the parish church in Vetteren, which is a suburb of Ghent where Arsene Houdetier lived and where he played the organ every Sunday. So at some point, probably to keep it away from the Nazis, the stolen panel was moved from Ghent to a space behind the rood screen in this um, suburban parish church 
Why do we know that? Well, we went with the film crew and with members of the Ghent police, and we filmed the exact dimensions of the stolen panel were imprinted as an outline on the back of the root screen, and it had been there long enough that dust and dirt had settled around the exact shape of the rectangular panel, but where the panel had been was quite clean. So it had hung there for long enough, but it wasn't there when, when we arrived, of course. So the question is, where is it now? Um, start looking. Not recommended to dig up any squares in Ghent, but it is one of the great unsolved mysteries of the art world. Um, right now, if you visit St. Baba Cathedral, you see 11 twelfths of the original Ghent altarpiece. Um, one panel was painted as a replacement to the judges by another kooky character, Jeff van der Becken, who was the most famous conservator in Brussels at the time, but he was also a notorious art forger, although people didn't know it then. Uh, he forged uh, works by um, Netherlandish and uh, Belgian painters, including Hans Memling. And when Hermann Göring, the second in command of the Nazis, fled at the end of the war into Switzerland, hoping not to get arrested, he took his seven favorite paintings with him. Out of the 7,000 that he appropriated after the Nazis stole them during the war, and one of them was a Hans Memling by Jeff van der Becken. So van der Becken painted this replacement panel and he painted it on what he claimed was a 17th century cabinet door. And it looks exactly like the original, but he made just a few small changes. He also painted on the back of the panel, a rhyming quatrain in Flemish, which says something like, let's see if I remember this. I did it for love and for vengeance, sly strokes, have not disappeared. And he refused to explain this. And he was quite a naughty boy, so he probably liked the idea that people thought he was involved in a 1934 theft. There was some thought that he had actually painted over the stolen original panel in order to surreptitiously return it to the cathedral without anyone noticing. But unfortunately, there, there was a recent seven-year restoration that um, completed only part of the Ghent altarpiece that put it in the headlines last year um, when restorers found that the face of the mystic lamb looked far creepier and more humanoid than um, anybody had ever expected. So when they did that restoration, they confirmed that unfortunately it is a replacement panel. But this was big news. This was a big part of the cultural dialogue in, in Europe at the time, so much so that there's a famous novel by um, Albert Camus that circulates around the story of a bar behind which the stolen panel is hidden. So it really infected popular culture and still does to this day. Um, and there would be one more adventure during the Second World War. And that's the last. Mm -hmm. All right, let's hear it. At the start of the Second World War, it was obvious to the people of Ghent that the altarpiece would be a target. And at that time, 11 twelfths of the altarpiece were intact and in St. Baba Cathedral. Only the judge's panel was missing. Because it was in the traffic pattern of uh, impending Nazi invasion because of Hitler's vocal opposition to the Treaty of Versailles, it was obvious that he would aim for this work of art. So the people of Ghent sent the altarpiece for safekeeping as far south as they imagined they would need to, which was Po in the south of France. Unfortunately, the Nazis conquered France and the object was taken from Chateau de Pau. 
But it was a bit of a race between Hitler and Göring. Göring was the head of the Luftwaffe, the Nazi Air Force, the second in command of the Nazis, and he and Hitler um, had a sort of competition to see who could get to the works of art that each of them wanted. Göring wanted art to fill his hunting lodge called Kahnenhall outside of Berlin, and there were about 7,000 works that had been looted by the Nazis and then appropriated by Göring that were displayed there. Hitler had a different idea. Hitler conceived of a super museum that would comprise the entirety of his boyhood town of Linz, Austria. He had this idea to knock down all of the center of the city and build this enormous citywide museum with every important work of art in the world, and the Ghent altarpiece would be a centerpiece of it. And this was such a focal point for Hitler that even in his last days hidden in a bunker under Berlin, knowing that he had lost the war, he would pour over the blueprints for this fantasy museum of his because he found some sort of comfort in it. So in Chateau de Pope, the Nazi art theft unit, which was modeled on Napoleon's art theft unit, it was called the ERR, and it was run by someone called Alfred Rosenberg. The ERR seized all of the treasures that were stored at Chateau de Pau in the south of France, including the Ghent altarpiece. But before it could be shipped elsewhere, Göring sent someone to pick it up for himself. And it's not quite clear how this shook out, but Hitler had none of this. Göring was not going to get this prized possession. And so um, it eventually ended up in Castle Neuschwanstein, the famous fairy tale castle in Bavaria, which is where looted art was taken to be restored during the war. And from there it went to a very special secret place. It went to a hidden salt mine in the Austrian Alps at a place called Altasee, which had been converted to a high-tech secret warehouse for stolen Nazi art. Sounds like it's part of a James Bond movie, I know, but this is a real place. I, I filmed a couple of TV programs there. I get to run around the mine. It's very evocative. I hosted the, the official Nat Geo tie-in documentary to the George Clooney Monuments Men film, and we got to film there. And it was perfect for storing stolen art because it has the exact same temperature and humidity all year round. So it's good for protecting these objects. But the Allies didn't know anything about this until there was a fortuitous toothache. So in 1943, we have to visit two of the Monuments Men. The Monuments Men were um, a military division of civilian officers who were specialists in art, who would be accompanying Allied Army units in the field in Europe to try to track down stolen art, but really to focus on protecting art and monuments that were damaged by the fighting, because when the Monuments Men were established, nobody knew of the extent of the Nazi art theft scheme. It was only become clear in 1943 when Robert K. Posey, an architect from Alabama, got a toothache. He and his fellow monuments man, Lincoln Kirstein. And if you've heard the name Lincoln Kirstein, he's quite a famous figure in New York cultural life because he's co-founder of the New York City Ballet with George Balanchine. And he would later go on to a career um, at, in the upper echelon of the, the New York Culturati. The two of them were young men at the time, and Posey got a toothache, and they were with the Allied Third Army under the command of General Patton, and they were in Trier in Germany. And so Kirsten goes into town and looks for a dentist, and he finds someone, and the dentist is tending to, to um, Posey, and um, they get to chatting, and 
the dentist is being very friendly and he asks Kirstein what his job is with the army. He says, oh, I'm looking to protect works of art and monuments. And the guy says, hey, you should meet my son-in-law. He's interested in art too. And they thought this is maybe a little bit suspicious. Maybe it's a trap, but they went along with it. And so the dentist drives them out into the forest to a little cottage that is tucked away. And there's someone hiding there. His name is Herman Bunyas. And he turned out to be an SS officer who um, had been Goering's art advisor. And Bunyas was at the time hiding from German citizens because the SS were so hated and feared by the general German populace that he was actually in more danger of being killed by the local Germans than he was by the Allies. So he's hiding there and he's chatting up Kirstein and Posey and mentioning, you know, um, the ERR and all of the, the art thefts and um, the, the hidden cache of art. And Kirstein and Posey are trying to keep a straight face because they don't know anything about this. None of the allies knew about it. Turns out that an estimated 5 million cultural heritage objects changed hands inappropriately during the Second World War. And this is the first anyone knew of it. And they certainly didn't know that there was a proactive scheme. They didn't know about the planned super museum in Linz. And they certainly didn't know about the storage depot in the Austrian Alps. And Bunyas tells them about it. But here's the thing. They're in Trier, Germany. They're trying to liberate Europe. And they're moving very slowly because they can't do anything themselves because they're just attached to this enormous Allied Third Army. So they get in touch with the British Special Operations Executive. And the British launch a commando mission where they send four Austrian double agent commandos, parachute them into the Austrian Alps. And their mission is to work with Austrian miners who are part of the resistance movement, who have spent their lives working in these salt mines to try to delay the destruction of the mine until the Allied army arrives. Why was it in danger of being destroyed? Well, Hitler issued what's called the Nero Decree, which was towards the end of the war, it became clear that they were losing, and Hitler didn't want anything valuable to be left to the benefit of the Allies. And so the Nero Decree was basically, if you can't defend something, destroy everything. Make sure there's no food, nothing valuable, everything should be raised to the ground. And the local Nazi Gauleiter, or governor, of this part of the Austrian Alps, a bad guy named August Eigruber, determined to blow up all the art in the mine if he couldn't defend it from the Allies. And at that point, there were an estimated 12,000 of the most famous artworks that were stolen, works by Michelangelo, Vermeer, Rembrandt, Raphael, you name it. So there was this race on, and amazingly, the Austrian miners and these double agents delayed the destruction of the mine uh, long enough. It was a very close call. An SS unit smuggled bombs into the mine, thinking the miners wouldn't notice, and the miners smuggled them out. The SS even sent a flamethrower unit to try to set fire to everything in the mine, but they were successfully blocked just long enough for the Allied Third Army to arrive over the horizon and save the day and chase away the bad guys. And Kirstein and Posey were the first people inside the Althusser salt mine, and inside was the Gandalfic piece among all these other treasures. So I think we should probably stop there for its many adventures, but suffice to say, there's certainly at least a book's worth. Man, it's been quite a biography for this one work of art. Where is it now? So all of it, except the judges panel, is back in the Cathedral of St. Babu in Ghent after a seven-year restoration. It looks beautiful. It also looks quite different, and it made headlines because 
it's going to sound funny statistically, but up to 10% of the surface of the altarpiece had been altered by up to 70%. That sounds a little funny, but suffice to say, significant parts of what we saw and what art historians have been studying for centuries isn't what Van Eyck made. And there were additions like in 1823, a Victorian restorer thought that the face of the mystic lamb would look much nicer if it looked more like a polite Victorian lamb instead of like a sort of freaky humanoid. And the freaky humanoid is, is intentional because the lamb is an iconographic stand-in for Jesus. So the idea that it has almost a human-like expression is on purpose, but that was painted out and the re restoration recovered it to, to the original. Um, but you can still visit it. It's definitely worth seeing in person. It's one of those things where an image just doesn't do it justice. It's so big. It's the size of a barn wall that you want to be sort of surrounded by it and get, get a feel for its vibe. So definitely go see it if you get a chance. Beer, fries, waffles, Ghent is the place to be. I want to hear if any of our listeners end up going to Ghent and seeing this. I would love to someday, but please please write in to the art career so we can hear about your experience. This is so fascinating, Noah, and especially just hearing, I mean, it's like some of these, you know, some of these stories I've heard and some of these things I know so much of what you just shared, I didn't, you know, including how many pieces in fact of all of these prolific artists were about to be destroyed, how close that came you know, before the allies really came and saved the day. I mean, that's, you're talking about a huge chunk of art history. Absolutely. And really choice pieces as well. Some works that um, would be in any, you know, top 20 list of the most important in Europe were, were on that, on the list of missing pieces. And then the other thing to keep in mind is how much we still have missing. But we have what I call a survivor bias. We tend to focus and study the works of art we can visit, which is understandable, but there are works of art that have been lost during wars or natural disasters in all sorts of ways um, that were sometimes more important to history or the history of art than what happens to have survived. Yeah, that we really don't talk about or hear about to this day. Well, it's, it's certainly fascinating. I think, you know, just as important as linking certain images in our show notes, we'll just make sure to have a visual trail. Over the course of how many years did all of this happen? So you had 14, uh, what, 62, did you say? So it was finished in 1432. So we're looking at 600 years. Yeah. I mean, so we'll put together a really fun visual timeline. Noah, this has been this has been so much fun and we can't wait to have you back to tell us, you know, about another art true crime story. All right. Thank you, Noah, Dr. Noah Charney. Thanks so much. See you next time. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of The Art Career. If you get value from this podcast, please consider helping me make more of these episodes by becoming an Art Career Premium member at theartcareer.supercast.com. That's theartcareer.supercast.com 
S-U-P-E-R-C-A-S-T.com. And please don't forget to rate and review. Every rating counts. Thanks so much.